Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true stories. I'm Rebecca, one of your hosts today. Hi everyone, I'm Karen. And I'm Emily. If my voice is familiar, it's from a previous episode as an author. I'm looking forward to coming on board as a host. I'm Sadie, another one of your hosts today. Hi everyone, I'm Sarah, excited for this eighth episode of the fourth season entitled No Other Home. I'm Sashiella, also one of your hosts today. In this episode, two authors reflect on their experiences with populations that, despite having permanent roots, are seen as temporary. This first piece is by a new author to Life Out Loud, Evelyn. Evelyn is a junior majoring in English with a minor in digital media and journalism. After taking her first creative writing course here at John Jay as a sophomore, she decided to take creative nonfiction with Professor Madrazo where she really dug deep as a writer and challenged herself to write about moments in her life that she would not normally share with the public. Born in Mexico, raised in Queens, New York, she loves going to rock and metal concerts with friends. Her favorite places to spend time in the city include Union Square, the East Village, and Washington Square Park. She also enjoys spending time with her mother and sisters on weekends and taking them out to museums or parks. Evelyn also enjoys changing her hair color every now and then. Her favorite hair color she's done was blue, and she hopes to do it again soon. You can always catch her listening to some of her favorite bands, like Motley Crue, Guns N' Roses, The Smiths, or The Cure. Recently, Evelyn has found a passion for playing the electric guitar. She also loves attending poetry nights in the city, on her own or with a friend. Let's take a listen to this piece entitled Temporary Visitor. I stare at my New York State ID, hating the way I came out in the picture. The black and white headshot of myself hides the bright pink hair I had back when the picture was taken. My already round face looks far rounder than it already is, and oh my god. Ew. Is that my double chin showing? Clearly these people at the DMV know nothing about good angles. Well, at least the acne marks on my face don't seem obvious in the picture. When I look back at photos of myself from high school, the first thing I notice is how clear my skin was back then. Before my acne kicked in, my skin's natural sand color illuminated with the sunlight. Just by looking at the photos, I can feel the pores of my face breathe again, without the pounds of makeup I put on it now to cover up the terrible mess I have on my face. Yeah, I've gotten used to having it, but I wish it would just go away. (sighs) After scanning my picture for any more imperfections, I noticed the small black printed letters on the bottom that read, Temporary Visitor, with two dates underneath it. I recognize those dates. They appear on my employment authorization card. But, um, temporary visitor? I'm no temporary visitor here. I obviously know my status here in this country, but having that written on my identification card almost feels like I have those same words plastered onto my forehead for everyone to see. It's worse than the acne itself. I can't believe that after months of having my ID... I am just realizing it now as I'm waiting in line to buy movie tickets for Halloween at the Regal Cinema Theater in Astoria with my little sister Valerie. (sighs) 
I still remember the first time I was allowed to go to the movies for the first time in sixth grade. I pleaded to my mother to allow me to go watch The Diary of a Wimpy Kid with the new girl in my middle school. I remember how hard I crushed on Roderick, the older brother in the movie with his dark aesthetic look and smudged eyeliner eyes. This movie theater is part of my teenage years growing up. I got to feel what independence is like for the first time. And I got to sneak into different movie showtimes with friends who just wanted to have fun and be rebellious. I remember running out from my middle school that was four blocks away from the theater to catch the four o'clock showing of the Hunger Games with my classmates once the school bell rang for dismissal. How can I just be labeled as a temporary visitor when I have spent my entire life here in New York City, right on these very streets? I'm not a tourist just visiting the country. My whole life is made up here, on this land. I am not a temporary visitor. DACA was created during President Obama's presidential term in 2012. This program gave temporary relief to the thousands of people like me who came to the United States as young children or babies. DACA would allow us to apply for college, get a work permit for a temporary time of two years, allowing us to renew after that period of time. DACA is not a pathway to citizenship and is only a temporary solution against deportation. The first time I was informed about DACA, I was just a junior in high school. My attorney during that time would remind me to research the term and familiarize myself with it. It could impact my future, she said. How could it impact me? What made me different than everyone else? My first semester in college will be the moment I realized how important DACA was, not just for me, but for the thousands of others who were in the same situation. The thousands who grew up in United States territory, who were brought here as children or babies by their parents, who only wanted what was best for them and to achieve the American dream. I listen and gaze at her shiny chestnut brown eyes as my mother continues the story of the 20 day journey when she crossed over the border for the first time with chubby one year old me in her arms. A person who smuggles others across the border, also known as El Coyote, was supposed to pick us up at 11 o'clock during the night. He left us by a tree in the middle of a desert and just told us to wait there till he came back. Hours passed and he never came for us. My mother begins to tell me. Seven people were with us during the trip, including a couple of children. When night hits, the desert turns freezing cold. Nobody knew what to do or where to go because it was dark. There was the sound of rattlesnakes wandering nearby. The rattle of their tails sparked fear in everyone. El Coyote left us in the intense freezing cold desert, our bodies trembling trying to battle out the cold. I closed my eyes and prayed to La Virgencita that nothing would happen to you. I had my long black jacket on me, something your father sent me from New York. I remember taking it off and putting you inside it, tying you up tightly inside so you could stay warm. What happened to the jacket, Ma? I asked, envisioning that black jacket wrapped around little baby me. Oh, I lost that along the journey. I'm just glad I had it with me when I did, my mother says, giving me a warm smile, with her lustrous brown-colored eyes, a resemblance of my very own. I try to envision what it was like for her, being in the middle of a desert, in the cold weather with a baby who she must keep quiet so that they do not get caught by patrol officers, taking her jacket off to protect me from the freezing night air that painted my pale cheeks a rosy pink. 
I have no memory of that night or the other nights of the journey, but I know that this story is part of my life and will always be. And I never want to forget this part of me and the way my mother held me in her skinny built arms, protecting me from the dangers that could come my way. I run to the dark forest green carpet, hoping to get a front row spot so I can see the illustrations on the book my third grade teacher, Mr. Treadway, is reading aloud to the class. Oh, how I love to see the big friendly giant with his big floppy ears and Sophie, the little girl who has been captured by the BFG and taken to a world full of other not so friendly giants. With his aqua colored eyes, he spends an hour reading the book aloud to the class doing perfect impersonations of the BFG with his booming loud, deep voice. I chuckle and smile widely as he goes on reading, not wanting him to stop. He could continue for the rest of the day for all I care. After read aloud is over, he tells us that in groups of five, we would go to the bookshelves in the classroom and pick our own book to read. A book with the word Matilda on the front cover captures my attention. The girl on the cover is sitting on top of a pile of books with a book on her lap. Why does she have so many books? Is she at the library? I grab the book with both hands, feeling the texture of it and flipping through the hundreds of pages and words it has. I bet I can read this in less than two weeks. Evelyn, your ESL teacher is here for you, Mr. Treadway says loudly across the room. I turn around and quickly run back to where I sit and carefully slide the book inside my desk before meeting my tall, slim ESL teacher who is waiting for me outside my classroom. I can't wait to go home and read about Matilda. Dreamers are undocumented immigrants that came at a very young age to the United States. They spent the majority of their lives on United States land and have never been to their home country. Those who have DACA or are recipients of this policy are usually identified as dreamers. The term came into use after the DREAM Act in 2010 failed to pass, but later on in 2012, Obama would introduce DACA, allowing thousands of immigrants to come out from the shadows. When I applied for financial aid during my senior year of high school, reality hit me when I found out I was not able to get financial coverage for my college tuition. What do you mean I can't receive any financial aid? I asked my college advisor. All of my other friends got their financial aid accepted. Why isn't mine? I am sitting across from her desk with my furrowed brows looking directly at her. After filling out my FAFSA application for college, she schedules a meeting with me to discuss some situations that popped up in the application. Look, I know we have discussed on prior occasions about your status, and I was there supporting you along the way while you were applying for DACA. But I hate to tell you that because you're not a citizen, you cannot receive financial aid to cover for college. She replies back, her lips stuck together in a straight, thin line. Wait, then how will I pay for college? I asked, sounding concerned. I printed out a list of scholarships for you to apply to and you fit the requirements for the majority of them. Some are even targeted just for DACA recipients. If I were you, I'd focus on the Dream U.S. Scholarship, she replies, handing me the sheets of papers. I give her a weak smile and thank her for taking the time to search the scholarships up for me. I guess I'm really not like everyone else. <sighs> Seeing all the clubs that John Jay offered on campus excited me. It was an opportunity to meet others and hopefully form new friendships. In a college with thousands of students, it can get quite lonely. I found out about the John Jay Dreamers Club when a friend of mine knew about these weekly meetings that would take place for undocumented students on campus. 
It was known to be a safe spot for those who just wanted to be around others who understood their situation and where the stories would be kept safe. It was during my sophomore year in the spring that I ended up having the courage to attend one of their first club meetings of the semester. I knew that I'd be walking inside a room with dozens of new faces staring back at me. The thought of it began making me question whether to go in or not. I stand in right in front of the room that the meeting was going to take place. I stood there for a couple of seconds pretending to make a call and hoping for a sign to appear reassuring me it's okay to walk in. A young woman comes out of the bathroom walking towards me and gives me a warm smile. It was such a genuine smile that it almost made me forget how nervous I was about going in. Before I know it, I follow right behind a young woman who enters the same room. Quickly, I walk directly to the first available seat I see. Two students are standing in front of the room and smile when they see me. Okay, I say to myself, this shouldn't be too bad, I guess. Why don't we start introducing ourselves to kick off this meeting? I see some new faces, which I'm glad to see. Would you like to start us off? The student standing up front says, looking right at me. I feel the insides of my cheeks burn up, knowing that by now everyone can see me blushing underneath all the makeup I have on. With a timid smile, I begin to answer the typical questions that are usually brought up when you're a college student. Major? Uh, English. Minor? Uh, still deciding on it. Grade level? Pretty sure I'm an upper sophomore. Oh my goodness. Everyone is looking in my direction. What are they thinking? Are they staring at my bright pink hair? Or the metallic purple lipstick I have on? Do they expect me to say anything else? I don't have a very interesting life, guys. As the meeting goes on, I get to familiarize myself with the other members of the club. I look around me and see many of them on their laptops, doing work for other classes. I should probably start on that paper that's due tonight. I notice a girl across the room looking intently at her laptop screen. She's wearing what seems to be a black vest. Interesting choice of clothing. But what stands out of her vest is the number of pins all over the vest. Colors of all sorts stand out from the distance between us two. Squinting my eyes just enough to get a closer view of what the pin says, I notice one in particular that says, Dream Act Now. Where have I seen that pin before? Oh, right. The Dreamers March to D.C. was recent. I remember hearing other students talk about John Jay's students being part of that event. So she was there. Marching. You always hear people talking about Dreamers like they're the smartest people out there. They all think we all work hard to get good grades and want to become successful lawyers or surgeons. The dreamers in others' eyes are the ones with full scholarships that have their tuition paid for all four years. They are activists or community leaders, sometimes both. But what if you're none of those things? What if your grades are just okay and you don't know what you want to be when you grow up anymore? What if you forgot to apply to scholarships to help pay tuition and now struggling to pay out of pocket? What if all you want to do is read books? Go on adventures with friends, discover new music, go to concerts, and write poetry or short stories. What if you're just you? Isn't that enough? The words dreamers, a generation of talented, motivated youth, a phrase I saw while looking at the scholarship papers my high school counselor gave me flashed back at me. What talent do I have? Sometimes I don't even have the motivation to do anything. I'm none of those things that they refer dreamers have, but I'm still here. I exist. I look around again, hoping to find a friendly face that I could start a conversation with. But everyone seems to know each other. I begin to feel distant from everyone around me. 
more than I already am. I don't belong here. I feel like a visitor in this room, like a random stranger who ended up in the wrong classroom. All I want right now is for the meeting to end already. I don't want to be rude and walk out in the middle of it. Relax, Evelyn. Before you know it, you'll be on your way to Barnes & Noble. You'll be surrounded by the smell of books and will treat yourself to a new book purchase even if you already have a whole shelf of unread books at home. But wait, I have a paper to do by tonight, damn it. I guess I'll take my laptop out for now and try to get a start on it. I'll fit in with what everyone else seems to be doing, and I'll be a scholar for the remaining minutes left in the meeting. <sighs> in my room, I am getting ready to go out with a couple of friends. It's an insanely humid, scorching hot day, yet here I am putting on a black band shirt with some jean shorts and black fishnet tights. Which band shirt should I wear today? I look through my drawer and dig my fingers inside to search for the perfect shirt to wear. Okay, there's a Metallica shirt here. Oh no, wait. I haven't worn my pink Floyd shirt in a long while. Where is it? Nope, wait, never mind. I'll wear my Pearl Jam shirt. It will go well with the red lipstick I have on. I check the time on my phone and see that my friend has messaged me saying that she is at the train station already. Shit, that's where I'm supposed to be right now. I run to the front of my full-length rectangular mirror to take one last look at myself. Quickly, I grab my pink makeup sponge and dab a bit more foundation to cover up the acne marks on my face. I'm not even outside yet, and my skin is already getting oily. Ugh. Mija, come over here quick, I hear my mother yell from the living room. She's watching the news, and on the screen, hundreds of people are marching in Washington, D.C. Why are they marching? What's going on? On the bottom of the screen, the words, Dreamers march the streets of Washington, D.C. on the fifth anniversary of DACA. They are marching. Hundreds of them. Some are wearing really bright orange shirts that say, Defend our dreams, in white letters. Others are wearing white shirts with the words, DACA will defend immigrants. As I put my small black crossover bag over my shoulders, I stand motionless where I am standing, thinking of the number of protesters, the number of dreamers that are protesting against the removal of DACA. These people are protecting me, my status, and my future. A feeling of guilt fills my veins, wishing there was something I could do feeling helpless, feeling like a terrible person for not being out there in the streets with them, protesting against the removal of DACA, a program that allowed me to step out of the shadows and allowed me to not fear deportation, that allowed me to live freely the way I'm about to with my friends. The sound of the people yelling and shouting, undocumented, unafraid, pounces against my brain like a hammer. I look down on the living room floor. You're leaving now? My mother asked, getting up from the couch. Yes, Mom. I'll be back later tonight. And don't worry. I won't be out late. I'll call you. I respond back, hugging her in an embrace. Something I usually do before I leave the house. Just make sure you do call. I want to make sure you're okay. That's all. My mother says, putting her hands on my cheeks. I will, Ma. Love you. Yo también, mija. And you should see a dermatologist soon, by the way. And I'm being serious, she says with a short laugh. I roll my eyes and give her the usual, see, Ma. As I close the front door behind me and begin to walk down a couple of steps from my house, the words float through my mind like a balloon, undocumented, unafraid. I am not a temporary visitor. <sighs> the Trump administration announces that they will end immigration protection program for dreamers, also known as DACA, the news reporter on the television says as I walk to the couch in my living room where my mother is sitting. After a long day from classes, 
the last thing I need is another headline about Trump's administration determined to end DACA. Clips of Trump appear on the screen while the news reporter goes on with the story about the dangers the program faces. The lives of thousands of dreamers like myself are at risk if DACA ends. We will be at risk of facing deportation and taken to a country we know nothing of. How can this country just do that to us and try to take away something that we have built and constructed on these very grounds? Take away the dreams of young people who call the United States their only home. How can this administration do this to us? My beautiful Mexico, only seen through movies and television screens. The bright orange marigolds filling the streets with children running around, excited about the Day of the Dead parade that will take place soon. I can only imagine myself roaming those same streets with my grandparents by my side, hearing their voices and laughter. The wonderful colors, red, white, and green, are seen all around the city. Thousands of citizens wait around the National Palace for the Grito of Viva Mexico on the day of my country's independence. From the screen of my television, I sit on the couch with my mom with a bottle of apple cider in our hands, and we clank our bottles together as we celebrate the independence of our beautiful country. The questions were always in my head at times when I would begin to overthink. Why did my mother decide to go on the trip when I was a baby? Why didn't she go sooner? I could have been a citizen. On a day when there was just my mom and me in the house, I asked her those very questions. And the answer I got back was not one I ever thought of. Anything could have happened on that journey, Evelyn. When I was pregnant with you, I wanted to go in hopes that by the time I reached United States ground and caught up with your father in New York, you'd eventually be born here, my mother began telling me in her low, soothing voice. But your father refused to let me go while I was pregnant. He feared the worst that could have occurred to me or you. And when I really think about it now, maybe if I did go while you were still inside my womb, I may have lost you along the way. A tear falls down my cheek as I try to process everything that my mother just said to me. All the countless possibilities that something terrible could have occurred to either one of us sends chills down my spine. I reach for my mother and wrap my arms around her warm body and begin to sob tremendously. This is your home, Mika. There is a reason you are here. And a day will come when you'll realize that everything had to happen this way. <sighs> New York City is my home. And it has always been my home. It's the place I fell in love with Matilda and the BFG. The two books that made me fall in love with reading. It's the place where I fell in love with bands like The Cure or The Smiths. It's the place I became enamored with the goth style of clothing. After wearing bright colored dresses and skirts and flats for such a long time, I finally saw this was not who I am. I didn't want to feel normal. I wanted to feel different. And I found the comfortability of who I am here. It's the place I felt all my math tests. The place where I came back home past midnight after going to a concert. The place where I got my first cat named Stewie. And the place where both my younger sisters were born. It's the place where I became a sister. It's the place where I got my first tattoo. It's the place where I celebrated a traditional Mexican quinceanera with my bright orange dress and shiny gold high heels. The place where my pearl tiara snapped in half when my friends pushed my head into the cake, where my nostrils filled with frosting. It's the place where my mom tells us the stories about growing up in Mexico and the moment I took my very first steps in my grandparents' backyard. It's the place where I hold my mother when she cries and cries because she can't go to visit her father one last time on his deathbed. It's the place where I walk into my mom's room to check up on her on the day of his funeral. 
the funeral of a man who only knew me as a baby. My grandpa, who used to always remind me how chubby I was when I would speak with him through the phone. I can't even remember his voice anymore. And I will never get to hug him in a huge embrace as the young woman I have become. It is also the place where my status does not allow me to visit the rest of my family back in Mexico. It's the place in which both my parents gave up everything like their homes just for us. It's the place that I call home. And I may not march or protest or attend meetings or know what I want to do with my future yet. And I may not be as successful as the other dreamers, but I am a resident here. I know that. I'm here. I exist. And I am not a temporary visitor. Wow. wow. That's right. No, you're not. Wow. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. not. Uh, thank you for being here today, Evelyn. Mm-hmm. And thank you for sharing your story. That's yeah. Amazing. yeah. Wow. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. And yeah. And opening up, opening us up to other sides yeah. of, of, of this thing that's just like ever present mm-hmm. um, in the current political climate, the past political climate. It's always a thing. Mm-hmm. And in the foreseeable future. Climate yeah, so absolutely. Far. Mm-hmm. But thank you. It really is like a hidden narrative. Mm-hmm. So, Evelyn, in the opening of your piece, Temporary Visitor, you discussed noticing on your state ID those exact words printed on it, Temporary Visitor. By the end of the vignette, you wrote the lines, I'm not a temporary visitor, and you continued to repeat this line at the end of the specific vignettes. By doing so, were you trying to remind others that you weren't a temporary visitor, or was it more a reminder for yourself, or neither? What was your intent behind the phrase? Well, um, I felt like I kind of wanted to put it out there. And it's also kind of like a reminder to myself that I'm not a temporary visitor Mm -hmm. because I felt like, think about it. It's an ID that you have where you show anyone wherever you go. Like you go out Mm -hmm. to like to a movie or like, I don't know, a restaurant or whatever. It could be any case. You could go anywhere and that's the first thing you show. Mm -hmm. So, of course, that already made me feel uncomfortable knowing that anyone that I showed my card to, they would see that. And thankfully, to this day, I never had, like, um, anybody ask me, really, oh, why does it say temporary visitor? Because mm-hmm. for me, that was always my fear. Yeah. I don't want anybody to ask me, um, why does it say this? Like, does that mean you're just here for a bit? Like, are you a tourist or anything like that? And I felt very uncomfortable to even be put in that situation. So, like, I guess the overthinking of that, knowing that, like, my ID already has that something that, like, shows who I am. But yeah. saying temporary visitor, it's like what like i'm not though why mm-hmm. like i didn't even i didn't even expect it to be there it was just there when i saw it it's like what can i do about it it's not like i could call and be like hey like i want this <laughs> yeah. taken off yeah. please yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know it it's it's that in itself is like like just like a a, a traumatic thing like because i i'm under tps mm-hmm. so i also have a right. employee authorization form that also says temporary visitor so anytime i'm anywhere I always get like a little bit of hesitancy from yeah. people. Like if I present it for if I'm if I'm buying kombucha, honestly, like they'll they'll ask for ID and they'll just it'll take them a second to find where the birthday is or things like that. Or I'm like, can you not? <laughs> like, it's, it's just a little things that like treat you weird or yeah. it's it's a little bit of like hesitancy, like how people will act mm-hmm. when they see something that's foreign to them. Yeah, something that for you sure. have no choice. Mm-hmm like it's automatically foreign um mm-hmm. and th- that's something i i get in your piece that i've just never heard before mm-hmm. so like hearing that and relating to that yeah. was like really powerful too mm-hmm. yeah i feel like a label like that is just so deeply personal to have it yeah. br- like broadcast to everybody that you m- potentially meet is 
it's almost like exposing yourself, but not completely willingly. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm, I think yeah. Evelyn mentioned it in her piece that it felt like mm-hmm. that it was like tattooed on her forehead or what, or or like something similar where it's like people. That's the first thing people will see if that's the if that's what you have to show them your ID. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and the fact that it's your ID, it's like yeah. become your identity, and yet it's not. You're not. You're mm-hmm. American. You've grown up here, and like mm-hmm. you said to your mom, if you, if she'd only come a few months earlier and you'd been born here, you wouldn't have the issues that your younger sisters have, and it's just like ugh. It's it's your ID. It's part of your identity, and yet it's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean yeah. that's what an ID is. Identity. You know. Yeah. I think that's mm-hmm. like a main pull away. Like yeah. being identified by things that you're not choosing to be identified by. It's mm-hmm. creating and reclaiming your identity in a way that's, um, I feel like almost apolitical. It's like my existence is not um, policy. It's not like mm-hmm. anything to do with any administration. It's me living my life. And reaching my potential and kind of just exploring who I am. Well, one of the things that stood out in your piece was how distant you feel from other dreamers. Mm -hmm. You wrote about going to a club meeting for dreamers and you said, as the meeting goes on, I get to familiarize myself and with the other members of the club. I look around me and see many of them on their laptops doing work for other classes. I feel like a visitor in this room, like a random stranger who ended up in the wrong classroom. Why do you feel like it's so hard to connect with those parts of DACA or other dreamers? And if so, is it because you see yourself as more of a New Yorker than a dreamer? Um, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, um, this is honestly something that I don't really um, discuss really um, aloud to others. But yeah, I think you kind of phrased it really well. I guess it's something that I've always thought about um, internally, but I never really... Um, was public about it because I, I, it's there in my head how I want to say it. But then when I, when people ask me, it's like I don't know really how to express myself because there's so much to say and I don't want to say the wrong thing. Right. Like that's always in the back of my mind. And growing up here my whole life, I sometimes feel like I've forgotten about my roots. I've forgotten of where I came from. I don't know what my country is like. I don't, wow. I've never been there only when I was a baby. Um, I have no memory such of like even my family members like yeah we speak on the phone but it's not the same. Mm-hmm. I have my friends here. I have everything here. So basically knowing like I'm from Mexico and all but it's like I barely know like my roots or basically like say um culturally um the holidays that they celebrate the dances the dances oh my god like there was this one time where um I went to this show and it was like a Cinco de Mayo celebration, I believe. And I went and there was these like dances, like it was like a Mexican dance, like a cultural one with like these beautiful long dresses. And they were dancing to the music, the mariachi or anything like that. And it was this cultural dance that was very, that's very popular. And just seeing like, even just seeing my mom watch them. It's like, I feel like I could be doing something like that, proving that I love where I'm from because I, to this day, I feel like I'm not doing enough to show that this is this is who I am and I'm embracing it. I'm embracing who I am. I feel like I sometimes feel I'm more Americanized than, be- guess, being Mexican in its own, I guess, if that makes sense. No, but, it, it makes complete sense. Yeah, yeah, I mean, think, I mean, here, like, me, myself, like, I love going to concerts. I love, like, the music that I'm into. Like, I'm so, I feel like I'm so different from a lot of like the dreamers and not just dreamers in its own but like 
people from my own country. I I don't I've never really had that connection with so many people mm-hmm. that shared similar um situations like I have. And um I felt like people just looked at me like an outcast or not even an outcast but strangely because yeah. I the way I thought, the way um I presented myself was different than everyone else. And I there 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 comes this loneliness sometimes with that. Because you feel like who can I connect with? Where am I supposed to be here? Where like what am I supposed to do here in the first place, you know? Sometimes there's that feeling of um what if I my mom ended up not going like coming here what if i was there in mexico right now like what would have become of me you know and then to this day i still have that feeling of um what am i going to do here like there's a reason i'm here my mom always reminds me that because sometimes i feel like there's nothing for me here because i feel so left out i feel like there's nothing for me here or sometimes i feel like i'm not doing enough to achieve the american dream that let's say um uh, my parents may want me to uh achieve you know i'm, I'm a first generation college student and I feel like I kind of want to prove to my parents that, um, you know, that their sacrifices were, um, you know, they were. Oh, OK. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're all right. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's what you talk about in your story. And it's something that I definitely relate to. Um, mm-hmm. And it's that it's the fact that no one talks about the dreamers or DACA recipients yeah. or undocumented people that are just different that aren't these people that you talk about that want to be yeah. doctors and want to be like yeah excel exactly. like beyond everything you they don't putting in twice as much effort as someone else and getting half as far is the most mm-hmm. it's the most overwhelming yeah and like <sighs> Sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> but, but it's I, yeah. one of the most overwhelming parts of all of it. Yeah. Is that you have to be like you have to be the top of the top exactly. When you are nothing. Exactly. And it go and it gets in the way of also like the way you are mentally and emotionally. It drains you. You sometimes feel like you you're just not doing enough. And sometimes depression kicks in. So yes. much. <laughs> Anxiety of you not doing enough. And that's something that not a lot of people talk about. Like they yeah. portray these dreamers that like they can do anything, mm-hmm. and against all odds, exactly. But it's like not all of us are like that. I want to just live my life normally. Maybe I just want to work a regular job at a cafe or something, and I just want to keep going to concerts or just do things like travel different states and all. And I don't. Maybe I don't want to be known. I don't yes. want. Maybe I, I just want to be like everyone else. Like why is it that I just because I'm a dreamer. I have to do something big or grand. Like, what? why yeah. can't I just be, like, anyone else? Yeah. And there's that pressure constantly, constantly reminding you, like, maybe you should be doing something mm-hmm. else. Yeah. Or maybe this is what you want to do, but maybe you should do something that um, is maybe bigger or mm-hmm. better, say, in everyone else's eyes. You know? Like, even, say, like, now, um, when my mom's friends ask, oh, like, you're going to college, like, what are you studying? Like, what do you plan on doing with your life? I always lie to them. I always tell them, oh, yeah, I'm probably going to be, I don't know, a lawyer or I'm going to go to grad school. And it's like, but deep down, I'm like, I don't want to go. <laughs> I don't want to go. Yeah. Like, if I could be honest with you, I'm honestly done with school. It's like, I just want to start living my life and just get rid of it and just do something with myself. Because, I don't know, it's just this pressure all the time. Kind of like, I keep repeating it, but it's like this constant pressure. And then seeing the news nowadays with everything that's going on politically... Yeah. And then it's like, especially when people are activists that are helping and like 
um, supporting what's going on with like DOC or TPS or undocumented people. And it's like, I've never done something like that. I've never have. And I'm some, there's always that um, feeling deep down of guilt. Like I should be out there. Mm-hmm. I should be there supporting people like me or the people like my parents who gave up everything, you know. But then I don't know. It's like so difficult because you're you're stuck in between two places and you just don't know what to do and then there's also that worry of like but I have to focus on myself you tend to forget to focus on yourself and you put your parents you put like I put my parents I put yeah, my sisters every, yeah everyone else before I do and then you then you be you break down sometimes and it's like wait what's going on or why do I have all these things around me like thinking about what I'm gonna do or what I'm gonna do for my sisters or for my mom or how I'm mm-hmm. gonna how I'm gonna prove to them that your sacrifices were worth everything. And right. here I am to prove to you and give to you what you gave to me. You know, like just me graduating in one year, you know, to give my mom that diploma and be like, mom, I did it. You know, like that, that I, I am so like, I'm so excited for that moment because I, college is not easy. Oh, it's not absolutely easy. Absolutely not. Especially, oh especially being the first person in my family. I, I didn't know what to expect. It was very hard. Um, depression kicked in big time yeah, you know um mentally i was like there was a lot of times where i just felt like i wanted to drop out there was a lot of times i wanted to drop out but i but then thinking no but what are my parents gonna say if i do that i felt like i had no options to even think about dropping out because I, it was i was kind of destined to go there that's what i was yeah. supposed to do yeah. and then it's like okay but so if i want to drop out what am i going to do with my life you know but if i drop out i won't have a career and if I don't have a career, how am I going to support myself? How am I going to, um, you know, help my family in the future? Because obviously, like, our parents are getting older while we are growing up, you know. And I guess it's the little things that you realize that could end up happening in the future. Like, you don't know what's going to happen. Right. And you want to be prepared for anything, mm-hmm. especially in a situation like this where anything could happen. Yeah. We don't know if DACA is going to stay yeah. forever. We, we don't know if it could be eliminated or taken away from us. Or we don't know if um, they're really going to give us that pathway to become citizens. So it's like anything could happen nowadays and we just have to be prepared for it. And I think that's one of my fears, like my biggest fear is that I don't know what's going to happen with my future or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And it, it's all to like stay in the country. You you have to do all of these things to like like prove that you are worthy enough to stay here when there are so many people that are like citizens and are like yeah i will just work in a coffee shop and they're like yes live your dreams you go you don't have to abide by capitalism or any of these things and i'm like no but we have to like we can't afford to be those kind of like minimalists like not thinking about anything like and not having a care in the world we can't afford any of that yeah we have to be like the best of the best and we have to work like 10 times as hard we have to like just all of these things that are like the i'm repeating myself at this point but it's 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 like all like definitely like hit upon in your story mm-hmm. is that it's it's just it's just a a a way of being that no one mm-hmm. talks about um and even if you are excelling even if you are all of these like great things and making your family proud and um maybe at some point you're gonna like send money back home like that's always a thing is like sending money back yeah. home, sending money back home mm-hmm. even if you are all of those things you are not enough it's taxing and you're not enough you're not enough you're 
depressed you just want to sit on the couch and like sit with your cat maybe that's just me maybe i'm projecting but i just want to sit with my cat i want to eat samoas because it's girl scout season and and i can't do that like sometimes i will just sit at home and just have this anxiety that i'm like i'm not doing anything i did all of these things yeah um which of course you can relate to so something like this is just of such importance Mm -hmm. so I don't, maybe you've already touched upon this, but if there's any, is there anything other than what you've said that you wish for listeners to, 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 to take away from this story? Um, yeah, I definitely wanted to, I guess for me, when I wrote this story, I thought of the people that were kind of, that were like me, mm-hmm. you know, cause I feel like there's always the media portraying one side of who we are, but I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one that feels like this. Who just wants to live a normal life. Doesn't want to be known. Doesn't want to have their name plastered on like you know walls or um, in media or big prestigious schools or anything like that. You know, um, some of us just want to have fun and just be normal and just be there. And it and I wanted it. I guess the message to also be known that like it's okay to feel this way. Like you shouldn't bring yourself down because of it. Because there will be feelings of guilt. Like you're not doing enough. But it's okay because in the end, you also have to think for yourself. And we tend to forget that a lot. We put other people before us. And then that really, um, you know, it messes with us. And it's not a good thing. And we have to learn to take care of ourselves. Because in the end, we're just going to have us, you know. And, um, yeah, I just really thought of those other people because I know I'm not the only one. And, yeah, maybe people may portray themselves as this, as this certain person. But maybe deep down. They're also thinking the same thing I am, but they just have never say heard someone else say it say it before, and I guess I wanted to do that, and let them know that it's okay. Like I also have these feelings. Like you're not alone, and it's okay to feel like you just don't want to do anything, or not even not do anything, but just do the extraordinary things that any other dreamer is doing or undocumented person is doing. You know. So I really wanted to put that out there and say like, hey. Like, there's this other side, guys. Listen up, and this is it. You know? So, yeah. You, yeah, you really did that. I mean, <laughs> you, you did really <laughs> did that. Yours was the first kind of story that I've ever read mm-hmm. like that. And it really, like, it was just a whole experience mm-hmm. reading it and seeing kind of the other side, seeing the personal stories, the personal stories of what I do see in the media and see, mm-hmm. like, it's like you it's like you took numbers and figures and made it personal mm-hmm. and it made me check my own privilege like you brought up so many things in your story that I take for granted mm-hmm. and that was really eye-opening and educating and thank you for that <laughs> um Evelyn with that thank you so much it was amazing to have you on the show thank you guys thank you oh, thank you, you. Our last story is by an author named Dimitri Patelis. Dimitri Patelis is a junior at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, majoring in law and society and minoring in digital media and journalism. He was born in Greece and raised in Queens, constantly traveling back and forth between the two. He's interested in attending law school and finishing his novel after he graduates from John Jay. His hobbies include playing guitar, watching horror movies, and supporting Manchester United. When he isn't studying for the LSAT or working retail, he likes to go to concerts with his friends and de-stress in the mosh pit. 
Let's take a listen to Dimitri's story entitled Pocket Change. When we finally get back to Greece after yet another 10 months wait in the glory that is the New York public school system, I realize that things are not quite what they seemed. For months back in New York, it seemed that the word Greece was suddenly never without one of the other two words, refugee and crisis. On the news, on websites, and on newspapers, or even in discussions with people, it seemed that everyone had an opinion on this so-called crisis. From my parents, to my teachers, to the guys at my barber shop, to my local deli guy who can barely point to where Greece is on a map. But I didn't expect to come home to Greece this year and find a blotchy white spray paint spelling out a massive no across the island's main boat dock. The majority of the people here barely know English. Yet, the sign was in English. A message to the world. Back in New York, I did whatever I needed to in order to go back home for a couple months. I couldn't wait to return to the sounds of teenagers with oversized motors on their boats and old men threatening to call the police. The feeling of swimming in ice-cold Aegean waters at 3am was nothing but a mask, a flashlight, and my spear gun. And most importantly, to the sight of bars that don't have you must be 21 with ID to drink signs on the front door. <sighs> on the last day of my junior year in high school, the heat reflecting off multiple blacktop parking lots as I passed made me sweat. With my report card in my hand, I stepped into my air-conditioned house on 34th Avenue in Queens and yelled, Here! It didn't matter who heard me. I just needed to show someone that I passed my classes. This meant it was time to leave for the summer. I smacked my report card on the kitchen table and kicked my book bag into my bedroom like Lionel Messi scarring from outside the box. I'd been waiting all year to do that. Why is it wet? my mom yelled from the kitchen. Don't worry about it, just open it. The silence that answered back made me stop in my tracks. Shit, what did I do? I finished with a 94 average, and I'm practically of straight A's. The silence is still there. Why do you have an 80? Finally broke the silence. You got an 80 in math? Why? She continues, as I make my way out to face her. You're just going to ignore all the A's I got? I say was more of an attitude than I anticipated. Yes, but it's still an 80. Why did you get an 80? My mother replies. I shouldn't have been surprised. My mom, a typical Greek mother, was always on me about my grades and how they should be near perfect. What Greek parent in America wasn't on their 17-year-old son's ass to get good grades? My parents moved here after they had me. My dad already had a job in New York, and they figured raising me here would be better than raising me in Greece. But it was important to them, too, that I never forgot where I came from. They made sure of that. I went to Greek school every Saturday morning at 8am where I learned to read and write Greek. We attended our local Greek Orthodox church whenever we could, drank Greek coffee in the morning and ate gyro, not the halal cart kind, at night when we could, and always went back every single year even if it meant leaving before school ended or having to use some money from my parents' retirement savings. One time, months before my parents had even bought our tickets to Greece, they paid $250 to ship down four cardboard boxes to our home in Greece because they bought too many things for family during the Christmas sales to take it with us in our suitcases. So, we were always talking about Greece in our house. Greek news was just as important to us as American news. My parents actually paid extra to get news channels straight from Greece on our TV. Online, on TV, or even over the phone, the crisis was all everyone talked about. Sure, my parents and I sent messages and called friends and family in Greece practically every day, but we hadn't been there in 10 months. 
And even though we were keeping up, a lot happened in 2015. And hearing someone talk about it or watching it on a TV screen was different from seeing it in person. Because when I find myself practically hypnotized at this massive, poorly sprayed, painted no for several seconds longer than I plan on, I realize how lost I am. This wasn't at all what I thought I'd see. Actually, I guess I don't know what I thought I'd see, despite all the media coverage. The American news like to show the same three pictures when talking about the refugee crisis. An overcrowded wooden boat filled with distressed refugees, their faces scared and in panic, the long lines of people wearing clothes still wet from being in the water, waiting to be processed, and makeshift camps dotted with clothesline tents meant to support whole families that served as home in the Greek region of Lesbos. Headlines everywhere read similar messages. Greek financial showdown overshadows refugee crisis. Refugee crisis prompts Greek coast guard to search seas nightly. Greeks worry about impact of refugee crisis on tourism. Horrific conditions discovered in Greek refugee camps. The summer of 2015 alone brought one million refugees to the shores of Greece. Nobody asked for any of this to happen, is what most Greeks will tell you. The country was slammed with $350 billion in debt already. And now there were thousands of refugees coming from Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan to our shores every day, they'd say. And while most went off to other countries like Germany, Sweden, and England, who were willing to take in refugees, thousands stayed in Greece. Why? Greeks wondered. Why stay in a place that can't even support its own people? That was the general consensus. It wasn't that people didn't want to help, but both the people and the government lacked the resources to be able to help. And yet, they're painting us as the bad guys in all this? Regularly, I heard these types of sentiments from my mom, my dad, my cousins, my grandparents, my friends, and they were right. Right? I mean, I'd spent my whole life both here and there. It was always clear to me that no matter how great Greece was, it didn't have the wealth that other countries had. Especially ever since the economic crisis happened in 2009. Around that time, people even began stealing electricity from each other's wires and tax evading. My friends would work part-time while in high school for only 10 euros a week, the equivalent of 1150 the unemployment rate was almost at 25%, compared to the U.S. or Canada's, which were at 4% and 6% respectively. People from big cities would travel to small islands just to find jobs, and lots of people were selling their houses and living in Airbnbs to pay off debt. So, as my mom would say occasionally, first, we lose our money, and now, we lose our country. What does everyone expect us to do? I mean, we know that these people are fleeing Syria and Afghanistan, that they have nothing to their names and that they just want to be safe. But how would we help? In this current state, what could we do? But then there were people like my aunt, who thought that we could actually do quite a lot. The kinds of people who wanted to volunteer and help the refugees at the camps. They need our help, she'd say. Much to the disapproval of most of the island. They came from someplace dangerous, and they have nothing. Then she'd add, what kind of people would we be to send them back? I often thought about her question. What kind of people would we be to send them back? Obviously, if they could go home, they'd want to, right? I can't imagine not going back home to Greece. But how could we help? <sighs> Within our first week back with my family and friends, things are starting to feel normal again. We're laughing over drinks and playing soccer every day at sunset, 
like we have been since we were old enough to kick a ball. And I've almost forgotten that the night sky here shimmers from all the shooting stars you can see. On our little island of 40 people that we call home, Telendos, things are as usual. We spend our mornings having coffee while watching the tourists come in, and we spend our evenings digging our toes into the cold sand of the empty beach, just like we have for years. One morning, though, it's my turn to help run errands. Unfortunately, this means taking a boat to the next island over, and then taking a taxi all the way to the other end of that island, just to get to the supermarket. In the back of the cab, I gaze out from the window at the road, with no sidewalks and pine trees with their trunks painted white so no cars crash into them at night rushing by. This country, it's getting worse and worse, my taxi driver says to my mother in the front seat, while I stay silent and listen in the back seat like a creep. The government has no money. We have no money. I can barely afford food for my family, my mother nods out the window. Nobody wants to help us get back on our feet, he continues. And what does the government do? They let in these refugees who ruin the island and won't leave. And they aren't poor people with no money. These people are coming from Syria and Iraq with money. They have clothes and cell phones. That's funny. They never showed it like that on American television. Is it true? Were these people not poor? I wonder. The taxi is old. I can tell by the way our driver puts all his strengths into turning the wheel. Not a small feat for a man who looks like he was inching towards 60. He sits uncomfortably in his small seat, shifting and making the stretched black leather squeak. It lingers through the silence until he finally breaks it again. What do you think, kid? I hear him from the front of the car. But is he talking to me? The words fly past my head. I keep looking outside the windshield at the endless rows of pine trees, with the white trunks covering the fields of olive trees. Dimitri, I hear. I recognize my mother's voice and zone back in. The man is talking to you. I shift my head to the left and see the back of a sweaty, balding head. I panic as usual. What do I say? How do I not sound like a stupid American? Am I trying to impress this guy? Why do I even care what he thinks? Why am I afraid to share what I think of all of this? Has anyone even directly asked me before? The questions race through my head until I'm finally able to form a few sentences. It doesn't look too good, I say, in Greek. I don't know who we can blame, but we definitely need some help. The silence lingers in the car as I go back to looking at the trees. We eventually make it to the other side of the island. There are no more trees and dried up fields. We're at the main port now. To my left, cars and motorbikes speed past each other, with no traffic light stopping them. To my right, the concrete's cut off, and blue Aegean water is clogged with worn-down fishing boats. And that's when I see it. At the end of the port stands a long line of people. Some stand, some sit, and some even pace around the port in frustration. I can barely make out what they're wearing, but I know who they are. My hands find solitude in the pockets of my army green cargo shorts. My left hand reaches all the way down and plays with the coins that I find there, anxiously. I know I have to walk in that direction to get to the supermarket, and I'm not looking forward to it. Why am I so uncomfortable with this? Let's go. I hear my mom command. The closer I get to the port, the more faces of those in line come into focus. Mothers. It's mostly mothers in this line. Some wearing hijabs, others not. And their children. Those seemingly attached to them. Some sitting on the floor, their legs folded under them, and wrapped with worn, stained dresses with long sleeves and buttons going down the middle. The bags under their eyes and wrinkles on their foreheads show that they're exhausted. 
One woman's cheekbones are very prominent. I wonder when her last meal was. Some men accompany the women on the crowded concrete, while others pace around the port with cigarettes and plastic cups of coffee, while mingling with others on the line. I can tell by their aggressive hand gestures towards the closed building that they're agitated. One man in long brown pants and a short-sleeved white t-shirt covered in dirt marks throws his cigarette butt on the ground while having a conversation with another man. Really? I think. I lower my sight slightly to avoid eye contact with anyone online, and I notice that many of these people have foam flip-flops for shoes, but some are barefoot. I can feel the heat radiating off the concrete ground, so I can only imagine what their feet feel like right now. One man is sitting next to the front door of the building in a small patch of shade. He sifts his hand through his black hair while he closes his eyes the way people do when they have the weight of the world on their shoulders. He stands up and walks off the line to see how many people are waiting. Judging by the way he shakes his head in disapproval, he's probably been here a while. Luckily for the kids, I think to myself, it appears that they don't understand what's happening. Many chase each other in circles in games that look familiar as they scream and cry out to each other with joy. I can hear their laughter even from down the road. Unlike the fatigued adults online, many of the kids wear bright colored clothes with flip-flops and sandals to protect their feet. Some adults on the line call out to the kids while they run, but like most kids, they don't seem to listen. As I approach the end of the port, I know I have to walk past the line to get to our store that's around the corner. I'm still playing with the change in my pocket as I hear bits of words and languages I don't understand fly past me, and I try to listen in on the conversations. I don't know what they're saying, but I can tell it doesn't sound good. The words sound aggressive and sad, like when someone in an argument gets emotional and you can hear them trying to swallow their emotions as they speak. One woman who stands wearing a black dress and hijab while holding her child is speaking to a man who seems to be her husband in what appears to be an exchange about the stock still line. She looks sad and tired, and I can tell she just wants to move, but she can't. The child she's holding sticks a hand out to the man, who then holds it, but his face seems to be cemented by his grief and weariness. The woman takes a step back to look down on the line. I think she knows that the line won't be moving, and she sighs like she's just seen it for the first time. <sighs> It's different seeing a so-called crisis on TV and seeing it in person, I realize. The TV doesn't show the people's frustration in their eyes and how tired they look. The bags under their eyelids, the cheekbones, or the wrinkles on their forehead. Not like this, anyway. I can tell they've been here for a while, and I know they'll be waiting longer than they expect. I suddenly realize I'm staring, but even though I'm looking straight at them, they don't seem bothered. It's as if they've gotten used to it gotten used to people looking at them like they're just some sort of island attraction. But I guess seeing people watching them is nothing compared to what they've actually seen. I try to imagine seeing the violence these people have experienced. I can't comprehend it, but I understand they've gone through something I'll never understand. I try to look at each person individually. Try to really see them. See them as people, and not just headlines on the news. I try to imagine what each person's story is, as I get close to the end of the port while still trying not to stare too rudely. What have you seen? I wonder as I eye one man sitting on the floor toward the end of the line. He's drinking coffee and squinting his eyes from the sun beaming down on him. He wears dirty, dark blue jeans and a black t-shirt with a Picasso-looking design on it. I wonder if his home was destroyed. If he's had to run for his life, run and run, only to end up waiting on this line. I see two women toward the front of the line talking to each other. 
They're sitting under the sign of the building that reads, in Greek, Port Authority, for shade. I wonder if they're sisters who lost their family in the chaos and decided to leave it all behind, only to end up waiting on this line. I'm practically on the line myself at this point when I see the store in the distance, and I know I have to go. I don't belong here, and I'm not helping. So what am I even doing? My mom needs me to go and help her carry the groceries, and so I turn to leave, my sweaty hand still fiddling with the change in my left pocket. But as I shuffle past a huddle of men and women grouped together talking to one another, I feel something bump into my leg. I look down and see a little girl looking straight up at me. She can't be more than three. She wears a worn-out, faded, striped dress and plastic pink and purple clips in her black-tangled hair. Even with all the clips, lots of her hair is still sticking out in different directions. I probably look like a giant to her, I think. That's probably while she's smiling while she's looking up at me. Maybe she's imagining my story, too. I don't know what to do except smile back. She has no idea, I think to myself, knowing that adult smiles are a rare occurrence on this part of the island, away from all the tourists and beaches and residents. My smile fades when I think about what she's gone through. She doesn't deserve to be here. I think to myself. I'm still playing with the coins in my pocket. Little girl doesn't talk, but I know she can use whatever spare money I have to buy a meal for her and whichever family she's here with. But what if some other people online see me and want money too? What, what happens then? A voice shouts from further down the line, and both me and the little girl turn our heads. I can only assume it's her mother. I should give it now, I think, before she has to go. I know she needs the money more than I do. I think back to the big no on my island. I think back to the taxi driver. I think back to my family. How can you not have empathy for these people? No, I have to give it. We should all be doing something, I suddenly think to myself. I count three coins in my pocket. The coins add up to five euros. The little girl's mother yells something at her again. I don't know what she says, but the little girl doesn't reply either. Five euros, that's enough for... Dimitri, I hear from down the road. Now it's my mom doing the calling. I look to the right and see her walking into the store yelling for me. I know I should be leaving, but the little girl is still looking up at me, waiting to see if I'll do anything. And I want to. I want to do something. Why am I not doing something? I go to William Cullen Bryan High School in Queens. I'm an American student with good grades. I have a home with my own room. Every summer I go to Greece to see my family and friends, and at the end of every summer I can leave Greece. I go back to my other home, where I have more opportunities and choices and freedom. I don't know what these people have been through, and I will most likely never know. But I know they can't go to work or to school or back home. And I know that this little girl's future is going to be anything but normal. She won't have anywhere to go back to, and so far, nowhere to go from here. Whatever house she stays in, whatever friends she makes, whatever routine she gets used to will probably change as the weeks, months, or even years go on. It will likely change over and over until this is all sorted out. It's as if she'll be waiting online her entire childhood. <sighs> I dig my fingernail as the side of one of the coins as I look at the front door of a store in the distance. What if her life actually gets better after this? What if she finds a home, goes to school, makes friends, and has all the happy childhood memories that a kid should have? What if waiting online will actually help? But will these coins help? What if they go straight to her mom and dad and they use it for something else? Or what if someone sees me give her money and then takes it away from her? Or even comes after me to get more? But no, it's something. I don't need it. I'm not afraid I'll be mugged here. 
I go to take the coins out of my pocket, but when I look down, the girl is gone. I look down the line and see that she's back at her mother's side. Her mother's already looking at me. My eyes meet hers, and I somehow know she knows I want to help. She smiles, and she waves at me. I can't do much but smile back. Dimitri, hurry up! I hear again from down the road. I make my way down the cobblestone road, still playing with the coins in my pocket, and hope that this line isn't going to stay here for much longer. I hope that the little girl and her family move someplace where they can move on with their lives. My mother walks out the front door and lowers her glasses. Where were you? She asks me. I was over by the line. I wanted to see what was going on. She looks slightly confused by my response. Okay, she says. Next time, just keep up with me. I nod. I never find out what happens to them, and I probably never will. But that entire summer, I see refugees everywhere. And I keep thinking back to that little girl, with the worn-out dress and the plastic pink and purple pins in her hair. What if I had given the change in my pocket? Would it have helped? At the end of the day, probably not. I don't think anyone or anything could have helped her or anyone else online. At least, not with five euros. And so, that was the summer that I joined the rest of the world in conversation. The summer I was left wondering, what can we do? So, we're having a roundtable discussion instead of our usual interview. So, we got a whole bunch of us ladies here, for the most part. Hi, fam. So, first question. Um, this piece invokes a lot of, like, talking and, like, thinking about, like, one's privilege. Right. So, as college students in America, we ourselves have a certain amount of that, um, a little less in some areas. But in that, we do have some sort of privilege. So, how do you guys kind of check that when you're reading a story like this and you're going about the world? I mean, personally, it's really humbling. Like, listening to something like this, it's, you kind of realize... Um, how far we've gotten compared to other people, how, um, how much we benefit from our schooling, um, the kind of community that we've built around ourselves. But there's also, um, I feel like, a privilege in learning that um, we realize that, especially in this story, that maybe that girl's never going to see. Like, mm -hmm. is she going to see a college classroom? Is she going to even see a roof over her head soon? Mm -hmm. It's very sad, but at the same time, it makes us think, like, while we're sitting in classrooms complaining about the next essay that's due, like, mm -hmm. maybe this is actually a blessing and it's not really, like, as annoying or frivolous as we may think it is. It was actually so ironic because I, Evelyn mentioned in her story that um, she couldn't get financial aid because of her status. And I was thinking about all of the people who might be getting financial aid in school and um, a lot of it because of um, their low income or their family's low income or whatever the case may be. And usually like you feel bad for those people mm -hmm. that like they get financial aid because they can't afford school or whatever the case is. And then you look at the other side, like in Evelyn's story, and you realize that there are some people who just they can't even get the help that they need. Like it's not that they don't have the means. They just they can't get it. Like mm -hmm. it's, so you then you're like, OK, who and it's not a competition, but like who do I like empathize with more? And do I have to like what you know, because it's like looking at the system and like hoping that it's going to give us like a tick. OK, those who get financial aid are those who like need it. 
and those who don't get financial aid are those who don't need it. So those are the people with privilege. But it's also looking at that other side. Like, yeah. if you're not getting financial aid, it could be for a myriad of other reasons and not necessarily, like, personal wealth or family wealth. I think that we can also um, kind of infer from this story that Dimitri doesn't necessarily come from a super rich background either. Like, mm-hmm. He talks about how in um, his story... He's had to scrape together money, like, along with his family. They've tapped into their retirement fund just to take their trip to Greece and reconnect with their roots and their family. So it's obvious that he's um, not necessarily coming from this uh, rich white background, Mm -hmm. but he recognizes in that moment that he has his hand in his pocket. He feels these five euros that even though he might not be rich, she's a hell of a lot worse than he is right now. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Gandhi's statement, be the change you wish to see in the world, has become a bit cliched, yet it's still relevant in this story. By the end, Dimitri has come to see face-to-face with the reality of Syrian refugees. He did not give the girl the five euros, but he changed his opinion and hopefully will support the refugees. How can we as individuals be the change that we wish to see in the world? And has this story changed our views on the Syrian refugee crisis? It's it's a really tough question because it's like in the story, in the moment of the story, Dimitri is like, what is this five euros going to do for this girl? Like, if anything, it'll get stolen. I mean, someone will steal it from her. And then what? Didn't do anything. Maybe I did worse. And I don't know. I feel like the most valuable thing uh, Dimitri learned in this story is he saw the other side because he's been listening to his family complaining about them and about how it's affecting them without really seeing them themselves. And I feel like part of the change in Dimitri was that he didn't see the refugees as the problem, as like the greedy takers who are draining the country. Like he saw them as humans. Like they, they, this little girl humanized this whole issue for him. And I feel like that's the change. He, that's the change that they became humanized to him. They weren't an issue. They weren't just a problem. They have their own problems. They are so desperate that this is what they've been reduced to. And I feel like that's part of the change. He changed his thinking, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the change. Yeah, I think that's one of the the important reasons to have stories like these, to have like pictures of how this is happening in a more personalized way, because it's easy to look at numbers. It's easy to look at political people who are getting paid so much money to just argue on TV, talking about all of these crises that are going on on foreign lands. And then it's a totally different thing when somebody writes a story about visiting their home, basically, and seeing it firsthand. Like, yes, these are people. And my people are people, too, who are also having a hard time because now a lot of people are coming in. And it's a matter of, like, understanding that everybody there is a person everybody there is worth being mentioned and worth being cared for but then there's that push and pull of like okay who are we going to focus on more in that aspect and I think that's an interesting avenue to take rather than saying oh they're ruining our lives or on the other side oh they're ruining our lives Mm -hmm. but to see it both as like we have to try to come at some kind of compromise I mean if you think about it like it's the same thing that's happening here we we're looking at um, undocumented people migrants and we're having the same attitude that I feel like the people of Greece are having we're like well not we not us (laughs) but um, there's still this talk of how they're stealing our jobs they're coming in they're invading our spaces they're taking our opportunities but how are we going to sit here and kind of not recognize that while we point the finger at the people of Greece kind of rejecting the Syrian refugees? I mean, this isn't something that's necessarily uncommon. Like, it happens here. 
it's happening with the people of Palestine. It's happening with um, the Syrian refugees. It's just when we have a lot of people moving because of, I guess, turmoil in their own country, we have to recognize that nobody wants to leave their country. Mm. Nobody wants to leave their homes where they've established their land. And I think overall, my general takeaway and question with the story is, is this going to make me look at the man on the subway different that's asking for change? Probably not. I mean, this story made me really emotional, especially thinking about that little girl, because that can be anybody. That can be my little cousin. That can be um, maybe my daughter one day. God forbid. Um, I can't see myself. Um, it's going to be hard, let me say, to change my perspective of needy people here because you you really struck with that idea of how can I help everybody? Yeah. And I feel like that's what he was struggling with in his story. Like, how can I help everybody? Because if I give this one girl change, maybe somebody else is going to ask me yeah. for money, you know? And it's I that need in me to help other people and not see other people struggle but then at the same time, it's like, I can't help everybody, so maybe I, should, I shouldn't help at all. I think that is an interesting thing to know is like kind of like seeing the opinion of other people like they should accept refugees and then kind of like looking at oneself and being like wait but those who are close to me also don't have homes or also are displaced in some way probably not willingly and it's like so where is that balance then and it's a question that I like often have like within like school and stuff like that because I'm a I'm a human rights major and I'm all I'm often thinking of like how do we choose like how do we just choose like what we care for how can we choose like to care for this and not for another thing and how do we care for everything and then how can we it, it it's so it's difficult because i'm sure we've like been like way too overwhelmed by the news and by like yeah, hardship and and those things but it's also wanting to come from a place of privilege being like oh my goodness all of these things that probably aren't affecting me are so difficult for me to like deal with and sit with and the pain of the world but that also comes from a privileged place going back to that first question so it's it's a whole big like thing that we also see Dimitri kind of wrestle with mm -hmm. in in the story um is is himself as a person and then seeing other people as as debate i feel like that's what's really important too because um we don't want to kind of take this stage and be like oh look at how this is affecting me seeing all of these people in trauma and seeing all these people affected by such like travesty we don't want to like there's almost something um dark and looked down upon about taking their problems and victimizing yourself mm -hmm. because you're like am i am i making am i being selfish but then at the same time, you're like, I'm a real person and yeah. I have feelings. So yeah. when talking about it, it, be it becomes really complex and it's just a really complicated conversation to have because you want to speak about how something is personally affecting you. You want to speak about how you recognize pain in others without making it about yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the important thing to note is like you can't the, the most important thing to like figure out about yourself is like first off I can't save the world and our job isn't to save the world that's not what we're here for but if there is something that is very strong in you that's like this is something that I resonate with or that I really want to help with taking it doesn't have to be something big but it also doesn't have to be something super small but just saying to yourself that like okay what am I going to do that I know that I can handle mm -hmm. like, because what's my first fight? thing yeah what is my fight what am i going what's the hill that i want to proverbially hopefully die on in oh that sense <laughs> yeah going off of that rebecca it's like what is what can i do that i am comfortable with and i think that one thing that i could after reading this story that i could do is vote 
Mm-hmm. I can vote for someone who supports the things that I do, someone who supports um, DACA, someone who supports programs and le- legislation like that. That That's something that I can do. And that's the change that I can bring. Right. And I also think that's something that everybody has to keep in mind is that you can't save anyone else if you can't save yourself. So if you're surrounded in this, like, with all of these news coming at you and you feel overwhelmed and you feel depressed and you feel this and that, you're going to have to take time for yourself. And the thing is, is that people sometimes feel bad about that because they're like, oh, my gosh, this is a privilege that I have that other people can't have. But at the same time, it's like, yes, but use it. Yeah. Yeah. This is you. This is where you are right now. And if you need to take time for yourself, then take time for yourself. I feel like that's what really relates these two stories, like Evelyn's story and Dimitri's story, because she feels like she has a privilege as a DACA recipient that's able to go to school that's able to kind of come out of the shadows and then Dimitri feels this privilege as being an American and being uh, able to go he says he's able to go back to his home in the end he's able to have that roof over his head he's able to um, have that family he's going to school Um, so they're very closely related in that sense where they recognize that there's a privilege but at the same time they're wrestling with kind of moral debate that comes with it all right and with that that was a great conversation guys Um, this story was absolutely fantastic and it brought a lot of talking points that we were all talking about so thank you all for coming here thank you all for talking about this and bringing the story to life And that concludes our eighth episode of the fourth season, No Other Home. We are all so excited to bring you new stories in the coming months, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear about. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get some behind-the-scenes action. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good night.